Hi everyone, it's Chris Lasarenko from Revolutions Per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution Per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards, upcoming guests include Anne Magnuson of Bong Water, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Casali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptid Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Cliff Skurlock. Cliff was born in Kansas a long, 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 long time ago. And his mother was a very talented musician and he inherited her love for music at a very young age. Despite not also inheriting her talent, he never let that stop him. He started taking guitar lessons at age four, but never could get the hang of it with his fumble fingers. He next had the brilliant idea to play piano, but was met with the same challenges. And upon seeing the kids are all right at age seven, it clicked. Drums. He played and made a few records and turned a fair amount in the 90s, gaining no notoriety whatsoever. But in 2002, he joined his favorite band, The Flaming Lips, which allowed him to quit his crappy job and devote all of his time to his main love. After a dispute over a poker game in 2014, Cliff was run out of Oklahoma City on a rail and found himself in Wales playing with his favorite songwriter, Griff Reese, which has involved more records and touring, and what with it being Wales and all, lots and lots of rain. Should it seem that all he cares about is making records and touring, he would be wrong. He also likes movies about music. And it is my great pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Cliff Skurlock. Hi, Cliff. Hey, Chris. How are you? Good. Happy, uh, whatever, is it three in the morning or something there? It's uh, 10 at night. Oh. Oh. Oh, I don't know what holidays <laughs> happen here. I just like the idea of just burning someone so hard overseas, just like, uh, especially talking about arguably the greatest unreleased documentary, music documentary of all time, 2002's MC5, A True Testimonial, that you picked to talk about such a great documentary, and we'll get into why it was unreleased as well. But hey, MC5 were no strangers to pushing bands around that came into Detroit. They had a lot of energy and confidence and swagger. So out of the gate, rank the three MC5 records right now, hot out of the gate. Let's make people mad. Rank them. I, I, I go in reverse chronological order. I think High Time was the best back in the USA. Second best, Kick Out the Jams. As amazing as it is, is uh, is my least favorite. If I, Which I hate saying least favorite about Kick Out the Jams. But High Time, that that's the one that, that's the one that, uh, you know, had a few friends play Kick Out the Jams for me. Like, yeah, there are a couple of cool tunes on here. And then, uh, yeah, my friend John Cutler, one night I was over at his house and he put High Time on and it clicked. And I'm like, this is the greatest record I've ever heard. Yeah, I have to agree with that order, too. I, I and, and we'll get into where they were at um, over the course of the documentary in terms of why these albums sound so different. This documentary was made with full cooperation of the MC5, um, all the living members. Wayne Kramer uh, on guitar was still alive. Dennis Thompson on drums. And at the time, I believe Michael Davis was still alive. I believe he passed away, the bass player. 
Yeah, he did. Yeah, sadly, a few years, few years back. Um, but then they got the the you know Rob Tyner and and Fred Smith's um widows. Yeah. Although I guess, well, you know, I, I Fred Smith was married to Patty Smith at the time he died, but it, you know, still had some representation, modern then then modern day representation of of Robin Fred. I I suppose. Yeah, it has amazing archival interviews from the past and, and more current things. But in 2004, uh, Wayne Kramer sued uh, the directors, Laura Legler and uh, David C. Thomas, alleging that he was promised he would be the film's music producer, which the filmmakers denied. And it was such a bummer. This film was made with such love. And you get so many great, just pure interviews uh, and insight from the band members who are still alive. You know, it doesn't seem like the kind of project that was going to make a ton of money. Uh, it was it was just made with the best of intentions, but it took years. And so the, the documentary had played in a few festivals and was ready to have a DVD release, um, which was highly bootlegged um, because of that. Um, but in March 2007, the court ruled in favor of the directors and the Court of Appeals upheld the decision even. And so they've been trying to, over years, to get this a proper theatrical release. They're having a hard time raising money to get the music rights. I mean, things often didn't go right for the MC5. And this also feels like a little bit of a, like a, you know, a, a veneer over the whole thing as well. Like, oh, they were going to get their due and now they aren't. No, I, I totally agree. If it would have come out at that time, I think it, yeah, I think it would have done really well. I mean, it was, you know, 2004, 2005, you know, I, there were a, a lot of bands who had documentaries come out that suddenly got discovered. I mean, I was in a band whose profile was raised, uh, considerably. By having a documentary come out. Um, Which one was that? Uh, Fearless Freaks. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, I, it, I mean, just just seeing the the response that people had. I mean, it was, uh, you know, much like True Testimonial, the the documentary was made with a lot of love. Um, right. It was actually made by you know a friend of of the band, um, Bradley Beasley, who directed a ton of those videos and. Blah blah blah, but yeah, I mean, our um, a, a lot more people became interested in us after seeing this documentary, and I think the same would have happened with MC Five, and and you know, um, being on Warner Brothers at the time, who owns Rhino Records, that you know owns the back catalogs of you know the the labels MC Five were on, they were planning a big reissue campaign for them to wow. coincide with the documentary coming out. Of course, that never happened. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a real shame. I mean, I, I, I love the Stooges and all, but I, I sort of feel like, yeah, Wayne Kramer just kind of shot himself and all of them in the foot by just, I, I just ego as far as I can tell and maybe a small paycheck like not even that much that I would think would be worth all this. And it is such an MC five move. 
<laughs> it totally is. It's like you watch this film and you're like, this could be the epilogue of this film where it's like years pass. And then, oh, God, really? Like, well, it's, it's especially, at, at, you know, as you get to the end of the film, which I, I guess I'm jumping ahead here as, you know, they're they're talking about the, you know, the, the band fragmenting and splitting up and and just how honest and uh, earnest Wayne Kramer is in talking about this and it's just yeah you know he doesn't try to sugarcoat it he doesn't try to it's nope. just yeah this is what happened and this was really stupid we should have known better than this and then dude doesn't seem to learn from his mistakes I guess <laughs> no it was such an on all the interviews in it are so they're so very they're very self-aware about yeah, I kind of blew it. I was interested in, you know, my recreational uh, interests rather than music and and owning it, um, which was really refreshing. And what's frustrating is a lot a lot of times a band like this, you're only going to get one documentary in this lifetime. You know, there's just going to be some bands that are only going to have it done once and if it's done wrong it's always disappointing like i thought the stooges jim jarmish thing um it just i didn't think it was it it was as good as what the stooges deserved i it just didn't capture it for me it was just my own personal thing I, I i agree this film is very alive and very um visceral and and it really it's just full of energy and it, the editing's incredible it just knows how to tell the story and I also feel like maybe you can tell me what you think of this. I always feel like the MC5 are judged as a Detroit band against the Stooges and Alice Cooper. They're always just kind of like, like they're put in a tier system of who is the greatest Detroit band when really we should be talking about they're one of the greatest American bands or one of the greatest bands in the world. I I, I agree. I think, you know, Big Star could, could you know, essentially, uh, duke it out with them for greatest american rock and roll band of all time but mm -hmm. I, no i would i would i would agree and i think you know sadly a lot of that comes down to people only know them for the song kick out the jams which oh it's one of the greatest songs ever written but it's it really only you know kind of touches the surface of what they did and what they could do so when did you first hear the MC5? Uh, I think it would have been 1991, at shortly, like right around the time I moved to Lawrence. Um, you know, the town I grew up in, just there was no, we didn't have any independent record stores. Yeah, I mean, the, the most radical thing you could get was like Jane's Addiction. But right. you know, not this, not the slag James addiction. They've they've got their place for sure. But um, access was limited. I, yeah. So when I when I moved to Lawrence and started hanging out with with other musicians, and you know, my my musical world like really opened up. And um, yeah, MC Five was one of those bands that I got I got introduced to. Um, yeah, in the early nineties. I remember seeing pictures of the MC5 before I ever heard them, and they completely matched what I thought they'd sound like. You just look at <laughs> right. them, and they're maniacs. 
And, uh, you know, maybe one of the most confident bands of all time, an attitude of we are going to conquer you. My loyalty to who is the coolest member of the band shifts. Every time I see a live thing, I'm like, oh, it's Dennis. Dennis is a monster. He's amazing. And I'm like, no, Rob, look at him. How is he doing that? And then you're like, oh, shit, look over there. Wayne Kramer's like, you know, moving across the stage on one foot. And then, oh, my God, look, Michael's stepping up. And he's, and then, oh, Fred is in a, a, you know, a space outfit, painting his face silver. Just incredible. They were quite um, documented, you know. They were filmed and photographed, and there's amazing live stuff. For a band of their size, it's kind of incredible. That's crazy. Well, and that the, the, the filmmakers managed to get like the U.S. government surveillance footage of them from the, you know, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 68. Like, yeah, that's uh, which is, you know, just another example of, of the absolute love that went into to making this this documentary that they left absolutely no stone unturned. Yeah, the film opens uh, at the Grandy which, you know, was a legendary Detroit music hall. You know, Led Zeppelin played there and Pink Floyd and Johnny Lee Hooker and Janis Joplin. I think it was the, the place to play in, in Detroit. Yeah, and it had, like, legendary light shows. I mean, there's a, there's a Who, um, a, a Who, like, the Who recorded a, a live album there, although only, only a couple of songs came out on, like, a live compendium. But oh, I didn't know that. A double-disc Who live thing that with some songs from the Grandy Ballroom from 69. Yeah, it just sounds like the place also that let them rehearse there and cut their teeth and move their way from opening status to headline status and just kind of winning over Detroit as a whole. You know, the footage of the Grandy, it's it's decrepit. It hasn't been a working venue for decades. You know, holes in the floor and ceiling. And it's kind of where the story of the MC5 begins and ends is at the Grandy. But the origin story of Wayne and Fred being just neighborhood kids and befriending Rob and them just just focusing in on rebellion and through music. I love that scene in the diner where they just they have an epiphany about what the band should represent. Right. Where, yeah, they talk about, you know, yeah, we'll be rebellious and throw things around. Like, that's not rebellious. And yeah, or yeah, Wayne describes the big fight they get into. And, you know, like, I could smash your face right now. Like, well, why don't you? And that, yeah, that that, that was the moment that like, okay, we're going to talk about this. And it's great. The filmmakers like shoot from the angle of the fight, like Wayne acting like he's fighting. And then it cuts to him above you know, the camera's below shooting above like he's Fred Sonic Smith being like, I'm going to I could smash your face in. And but when Rob said, well, why don't you? Wayne's like, and it fucked him up. And the music stops. <laughs> yeah. and he's like, it fucked Fred up. He realized that violence wouldn't get him an answer. And he said it was for them. It was deep. And we drove around for five hours and talked about what had happened. And you know, what it meant and what kind of band we were going to be. This film is full of stories like that. They're a strange unit of people that came together to create this force. 
no, it's true. Yeah, they were, you know, like, yeah, a band of brothers, really. Yeah, it wasn't just, you know, answering an ad in a, you know, local local newspaper. For It's like, yeah, Rob, Fred, and Wayne had this bond, and Michael and Dennis came in, but, you know, it, I, I don't think it could have worked without any of them, really. It was just some magical combination of, of the five that all managed to get on the same page at the same time and want to move in the same direction. And Yeah, they were fine with clearing rooms with noise. You know, they were on the same page. There was not one of them who was like, oh, man, come on. Like, you know, people want to dance. It was like they were right. cool with it. And Michael even says at one point that um, like the MC5 was a human being. It was a person named MC5. Right. And this was like 1965, 1966 that they're that they're doing this. So like, you know, I, I you know, so the Velvet Underground were, you know, in existence at the time. But I don't I don't think they would have had any way of knowing about them no. yet. You know, they, they didn't have any records out at that point. So um, pretty, yeah, pretty ahead of the game, in, in my opinion. Yeah, there's a footage of them playing on TV, they're playing like a local TV channel and they're playing black, uh, uh, black to com. They're just destroying the end. It's just like, and they're just making all this feedback and sound for minutes. And, you know, even the people in the uh, studio running the cameras are doing the thing where zoom in, zoom in, zoom out, you know, just like trying to make it really psychedelic. The, the uh, announcer, the host goes, uh, now we know how the Marines feel at the boundary line when the, North Vietnamese rocket shells came pouring in. <laughs> right. It was like, that was their context. Well, and you can tell that they're playing so loud that it's jarring the cameras that, you know, the, 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 the you know, it's the, the footage is all, is all, is all wavy because it's actually like disrupting the, the electricity in the room, which just kind of, you know, like adds to it. Uh, to, to me anyway. Yeah. The film vibrates it has so much energy and whether it's with the choice of sound editing or the visual elements um they do a really good job of even making still photographs feel like they're moving i, I agree and uh you know as i was re-watching it before before talking with you um one thing that really struck me is how well they they cut between you know, interviewing Wayne Kramer, and he starts to tell an anecdote, but it involves someone else. So then they cut to their interview. Like, yeah, I just, um, the, yeah, just was completely, I don't know if I just never noticed before or had kind of forgotten about it because it's, it's been a few years since I've watched it, but I, yeah, it was really, just as I was watching it again for, you know, probably the 50th time, um, <laughs> was just taken by how amazingly it was, it was edited. And again, it goes back to just what a labor of love it was and how they must have just spent forever on it and, you know, rewatching it and like, oh, actually, we need to cut to this now because we can, you know, um, yeah, I don't want to pretend I know their thought process, but... The film just, 
it just buzzes by. And then all of a sudden you're at the end of the film. I just think it's, it doesn't have to be just for people who are familiar with the MC5. I think it's, it's just a great um, story about, you know, these kids who came up and yeah. all the things they got, they got tied into, you know, which we'll get into when, in a second, when they get together with like, um, John Sinclair and things like that. And say, I've, I've actually turned a lot of friends onto the MC5 by showing them the documentary. And then they're like, wow, okay, now now I want to hear their music again. And it, you know, kind of helps, yeah, helps it click. It's the music documentary equivalent of handing someone a mixtape. Yes. That, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. That was a great way of putting it. I wanted to ask you about Dennis Thompson and you're a drummer. He is phenomenal, an incredible drummer. I wanted to get your insight on what he brought to the band and uh, just his attitude and energy in the film as well. Well, I mean, you know, number one, he just, he, yeah, he had a ton of energy. And so just having that, you know, that backbone behind the whole thing, just, you know, um, as, as any musician knows, if you play with a drummer that's kind of half asleep, no matter how you try, your music's just going to sound like it's half asleep. And, um, but it, it doesn't go into it. And I've never found, I've never found any interviews or anything by him where he talks, you know, in depth about his his upbringing but my my guess is that he had a drum kit had the desire to play and that was good enough for the band but he didn't really have a lot of knowledge or a lot of skills coming into the band and i think that's part of what makes him so great and so integral in the band is that he grew as the band grew and just um, cause yeah, if you, if you just analyze what he's playing on its own, it's pretty weird most of the time. And you wouldn't think, yeah, if you take that playing and put it with almost anybody else, like any other song, and it just would not work. But you couldn't imagine, you know, Rocket Reducer with any other drum part than you know the, the constantly like rolling toms and like flipping back and forth between accenting the downbeat and the you know the offbeats and um yeah i mean and, and i you know i think it's it's kind of in a weird way fitting that you know the last song on the last mc5 record um skunk sonically speaking is is I, I, yeah, I, I, like one of my quote on bucket list things or desires or whatever is like, if someday I can play that drum part all the way through in one go, I'll feel <laughs> pretty good about myself. The, the other great thing about the MC5 is their personalities are in the instrumentation they play. Absolutely. Dennis's interviews where he's just like, hey, fuck you, kiss. Yeah. You didn't think of that, you morons. Um, he's just full of just this 
this energy of like, we should be around still. We fucked up. Right. We were the greatest. We should still be here. And his interview is just, you know, he's like at one point, at one point pointing a gun at the interviewer because they said something a little slightish. Right. And like, it's, it's just rock and roll. Like, what's the big deal? Like, it's not just rock and roll. It's not just rock and roll. Oh, I wish this thing was loaded. Yeah, that's his energy is like that throughout. And you watch him play drums and you can imagine they would talk about how worked up they were. And they would say we were out of our minds by the time we went on stage. And we just the show had already started before we got on stage and they just didn't leave anything behind. And I think Dennis's and everyone who's interviewed just has that thing about them where they're like, they still know that they were the greatest. That is one of the things where, yeah, um, you mentioned a couple of times their confidence and I, you know, I've thought about that, but thought, you know, if, if I was in a band that great, I, there'd just be, you could be the most humble person in the world, but would just have to step back at some point and be like, man, we're kind of best thing in the world right now. <laughs> um, cool. Let's keep practicing. Also, when it came to bands touring through, so like a band like Cream would come in, they would just push them around and be like, hey, what do you got? Kick out the jams, motherfucker, or leave. And they would just try to get in these bands' heads. And I can imagine having to follow the MC5 must have been... um a real treat. That is one thing I do wish was in this documentary is them talking to Ginger Baker or somebody who might have seen some of these shows and remember, remember, oh, these teenage hoods came in and right. they, they were intense, you know, because we're, we're hearing it from their side. But oh, just to be a fly on the wall this in that back room to see them uh, such an extension of what they were going to bring to the stage. Sure. And yeah, I, I guarantee there was no competition between MC5 and Cream. Like of, of, of all the, you know, yes, they're showing all the, the posters and, you know, it, it's like the Who probably could have given them a run for their money, like maybe Jimi Hendrix experience. But yeah, you're right. seeing all these other ones. It's just like, oh, those poor guys. They had no idea what they were in for when they came to Detroit. Oh, it's so true. Uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, I think I think the Who would be the one that would be like, we got we got it. Yeah, we're there. So John Sinclair took on the role of the manager, and he wanted to kind of combine, kind of like the yippie movement, um, with his own radical ideology and commandments, and the rawness of the MC Five. And for a while, it really worked to everyone's benefit. Everyone was all in, um, and they lived on a commune. Translove Industries, I think they called it. And that's where they, yeah, they, they lived on that commune, and they moved up to, to Ann Arbor, and that's where they, they met and like became buddies with the, with the Stooges. Yeah, their baby brother band. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea of like, yeah, come with us. Come on, Stooges. But John Sinclair, uh, while working with the band, served as a founding member of, of what the White Panther Party. 
um, which was like a militant uh, anti-racist uh, social group, like a counterpart to the Black Panthers. And the band, you know, jumped into it. Some of them were really not super comfortable. They're like, I don't want to mix politics with music. This seems like we're taking our eye off what we should really be doing. But at the time, it also, they were taking pictures with them kind of being militant, you know, like with guns and kind of wanting to start a revolution. It wasn't like they were playing around. They were really, they were really serious about it. Like they wanted to push back against the U.S. government and the police, which especially in Detroit were pushing down so hard. Yeah. Well, and they were, you know, around for the the riots in 67 where, you know, a large portion of the town, you know, burnt down and right. um, sent the federal troops in, you know, as they talk about in the in the movie that they were targeted by, you know, the, the local police and the local government as well and had their van firebombed and, you know, they just all, all kinds of intimidation tactics, you know, by the by the police, to, you know, like centered around you know the their their house that they all lived in and you know constant raids for no reason and yeah and john sinclair was eventually jailed for marijuana possession and, and got a really harsh sentence yeah for selling two two joints to to an undercover cop it was a 10-year sentence because you know john lennon wrote that song they gave him 10 for two you know what what can somebody do? I forget exactly how the song goes, but um, yeah, I mean, that's a, I think, you know, an example of just kind of who, who he was or how he was known or whatever that, you know, when he got jailed and they, you know, put on a benefit show that they, John Lennon came and played. That's right. Yeah. It's kind of an amazing time when bands still needed kind of a, figurehead to be a manager you know zeppelin had theirs the who had theirs the beatles had theirs and the mc5 had john sinclair i mean he's not colonel tom parker but it was still a tradition where uh, we need a manager and we need someone who's going to speak for us and help us get this together it's just kind of an interesting holdover because I don't know any managers' names nowadays. Right. No, I guess I guess I don't really either. I, I think I think, you know, that that round of boy bands in the early two thousands that were all managed by what's his face. Like he was in the news at the time because he had backstreet boys and in sync and ninety-eight degrees, but yeah, I think that that might have been the end of the the superstar manager. Yeah, I I think I think we need more superstar managers now that are just the household names. Um, well, I know a, a few who think they should be. That, <laughs> but, um, so, Danny Fields from Electra comes down from New York. I love it. I could watch him talk for days on end. He is endlessly entertaining to me. Incredible. Part of the Warhol scene, like his his radar was so on, but every band he picked also didn't really make a mark in terms of 
record sales or a movement until years later. But we're talking about the Velvet Underground and the MC5 and the Stooges and uh, the Modern Lovers. To be him and to see these amazing things, just not have them break, even though you know this is the greatest thing ever. I don't know how he got back on a bike and moved to the next band. At some point, I'd just be like, what's the point? Really? But, I, you know, but he might have just realized that I'm I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So I'm going to keep doing doing my thing. And, you know, it is definitely, yeah, like you said, like everybody that he championed and got behind, like eventually people caught up with them. So I'm sure what whatever doubt whatever dark nights of the soul he may have had at the time i'm sure you know he's sitting somewhere right now being like told you he says uh everything in new york the warhol scene it was so a feat we were ready to be slammed by something that was full of blood lust and sweat cum and vigor he's like they had it he loved the viking power of the mc5 And, you know, even though he was there for the Velvet Underground, which had so much power, too, it was a different thing live than than the Velvet Underground, you know, in terms of how they used sound and their bodies. Like the MC5 uses their bodies to create what they make. It it is like watching five, like, um, separate rock shows at one time on the stage. <laughs> right. But no, and, and yeah, and all the footage you see of, of MC5, like they, none of them are ever still for a moment. They're always in motion. Even, you know, Michael, who's, you know, seems to be like the quiet one who's tucked in back by the drums, like when the camera does focus in on him, like he is giving it his all and he's he's back there and he's moving he's not doing like sweet moves like Wayne Kramer or Rob Tyner are but he's oh he looks so cool though his hair's swinging and he's just like the force of his bass playing it, it's an extension of every part of his body I, I will put in the show notes right. to this the performance of Looking at You from 1970 at Wayne State University in Detroit is incredible you know it's it's a two chord song with incredible solos by Wayne Kramer. But this is what we're talking about. Just five unique performances coming together. And every one of them is stealing the show. It's like, it's you don't know where to look. It's incredible. Well, within the first 30 seconds, like <clears throat> where the, the camera is, where you can see Dennis Thompson, like within the first 30 seconds of the song, he breaks two drumsticks. <laughs> like, how many more did he break once the camera moved on to the other guys? Like, how many did he break during that whole set? Which means, how many did he break on average? You know, just, um, and yeah, he's playing these, you know, by, by, 70s and beyond standards these like dinky drums and tiny cymbals and getting this huge sound out of them yeah um you know and and there's like one one microphone like 
overhead and it's incredible and even the audience members it's really fun to watch like the people standing behind the amps the people in the audience they their mouths are just they're it's open they're just like oh my god i can't even imagine what it would be like to like witness them especially if you're not expecting it It, it's i mean the only thing i could you know compare it to would probably be like seeing deer hook today you know like you you can always if you see deer hook see the uninitiated in the crowd because like they're the ones that are just like (laughs) what the fuck is this so they get signed to electra and at the same time the mc5 are like check out our baby brother ben iggy and the stooges and so they're like oh electra's like we found two amazing artists at the same time so electra's like uh, is it Jack Holzman, I believe is his name? Yeah. Offered the big band 20000 and Danny Fields goes, how's 20? John Sinclair's like, right on. And then they're like, offer the baby band 5000 They're like, 5000 for the Stooges. And they're like, fuck yeah. And then they're just like off to the races with these two bands. And they their first album, Kick Out the Jams, there was a lot. I didn't know there was a lot of hype about the band. I was doing some reading about it. It's not really covered in the movie. The album got to number 30, which was more successful than I thought that album did. A live album by an unheard band. Um, But I think a lot of the attention was on the use of the word motherfucker. (laughs) And the liner notes that were eventually wiped off it that were in the original uh, release of the album seemed like a lot. You know, uh, Rob Tyner is on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah, they were on the cover of Cream. Yeah, they come out. The first song, they're doing a Jerry Lee Lewis cover. You know, um, they Sun Ra stuff. It's just like, it's like seven songs, right? Eight, but yeah. Eight songs. And they're long and they're it's messy and it's great. But to come out with Rambling Rose with Wayne Kramer singing. <laughs> falsetto and that falsetto and it's super sloppy and you're like huh because that was the first mc5 song i heard right same and i was like interesting uh-huh and i was like okay and then it's like a sneak attack it's like this bait and switch rob tyner comes out kick out the jams motherfucker screaming and then right into the song and it's just like the smartest move actually like for them not to lead with it. I, yeah, actually, I've never thought of it that way, but but you're right that it does, you know, yeah, it, it gets you curious, like what is going on here, and, you know. So yeah, right. you're in tune with it, and then bam, you get clobbered over the head. Nothing else sounded like it. I was given it on a mixtape. I, I had to sit down and pay attention. There was something going on in it that I didn't understand on first listen. Right. No, I was I was the same way. I, and I, you know, honestly, just kind of kind of dismissed it at first. And, you know, it was after hearing High Time and, and getting it and getting really into them and then going back to kick out the jams that, you know, I finally realized like, oh, yeah, this is this is really brilliant. Yeah, I just don't think there's still today like really anything you could do to prepare somebody for for hearing it the first time. No, and the 
I, you know, I don't think the world was ready either, even though it sounds like people were buying it because of the story. There was a lot of stuff. You know, John Sinclair was really brilliant at pushing the hype, too, and was very eloquent and very smart and very, you know, dope, rock and roll, fucking in the streets. Right. Well, and as you were saying earlier, that you'd seen photos of them before you heard them and were intrigued by the photos like those had to have helped, you know, the, the Rolling Stone, you know, being on the cover of Rolling Stone and whatever photos were in that article. Yeah. Who looks like Rob Tyner? Right. I mean, who looks like any of them, you know, like, <laughs> but so I can just imagine that I'm some kid somewhere reading Rolling Stone because it's a cool magazine and oh, they're MC5 and okay, but, right. wow, these guys look crazy. Like, of course I'm going to go buy that, that record. And they were starting to get arrested for disturbing the peace and obscenity disturbing the peace the violations are fights in public places malicious intent to disturb the peace through loud and unreasonable noises and third using offensive words inherently likely to draw a violent reaction and you're like okay that sounds yeah all, all three of those tracks yeah so they put up this album that says you know motherfucker on it and it's really great in the film i also like when they talk to their their wives and they're like oh they said the f word you know like <laughs> right it, but it was a really big deal on a record well it seems so quaint now but you know thinking that at the time well i mean it was a year or so later that you know jim uh, like if jim morrison hadn't died his career and the doors's by by proxy may have been over for him getting in trouble for you know, swearing and potentially exposing himself on stage. Like, you just, you know, think that right now to hear a band say motherfucker on stage seems pretty quaint. Um, yeah, you know, late, late 60s. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't like that. John Sinclair's liner notes are, you know, just, he's just trying to kick up the revolution. And um, Electra were, pretty nervous about it and this really big department store hudson's they refused to carry the record because of the word motherfucker and the liner notes so the band goes to the local free paper takes out a full page ad that says fuck hudson's and they put electra's <laughs> they put the electro logo on it and they're dropped because hudson's won't carry any electro records now and danny feels like Oh, guys, you just can't put the record. You can't put the label logo on the thing. Oh, come on. And so that's the end of MC5 and Electra. You know, similar kind of Sex Pistol kind of thing where it's just like, all right, well, we're going to find something else. Right. Um, but the, the album's reissued without, uh, it's edited without the motherfucker and they take the liner notes out as well. Right. Which which I wonder I, they don't they don't say it in the film. And, and I've never been able to to find out. But I've, I've been curious as to like, because like you said, the album, you know, went to number 30, which means it would have had to have sold quite a bit. But I in all of my years, I have seen three copies of that record with the original John Sinclair liner notes. I've seen a ton of copies of it with the, you know, the, the, the amended version, but, you know, um, 
yeah, one one copy was on a wall at a record store with a two hundred and fifty dollar price tag on it. Yeah. One of them, weirdly, my roommate had, um, and my roommate Kitty, who I lived with uh, in in Lawrence for about ten years, um, and then it turns out her dad, it was her dad's record, and her dad had lived at that commune with them in Ann Arbor. Oh my. God. And so it's amazing. Yeah. And so she had this record forever. And it wasn't until like I'm rifling through her records, like, <laughs> oh my God, you have a first pressing and kick out the gym. Oh my God. And I start going into this whole spiel that she doesn't care about because right. she doesn't particularly like the record about this is so rare and this is blah, blah, blah. And this is, and she's like, wait, I wonder if this is the band my dad lived with. And turns out, oh yeah, it was. Anyway. Amazing. Yeah, you know, that's just my parents' music. They're square. <laughs> right. They had a commune. Uh, there was a bunch of weirdo garage hippies. So, but the band starts pulling away from John Sinclair and they get signed to Atlantic. John Lando, who, you know, worked a lot with Bruce Springsteen, had never produced a record. This was the first record he ever produced. Yeah, you can kind of tell when you listen to it. Yes. I love this record i think it has some of the best songs on it agree but the production i mean american ruse yeah american ruse let me try yeah human being lawnmower shaking street call me animal looking at you it's packed with amazing songs the production is really less than inspired in terms of energy it's very clean you can hear everything it's kind of muted I, I'm not into the remix, the album things. I know they just did it with Tim recently, and I actually heard it the was, other day, and it, it was pretty incredible. Like, they're two different records, kind of. No, I, I like the remix, but I found that, you know, a couple days listening to the remix and hearing all the, like, Bob's parts that had gotten mixed out, and like, yeah, oh, that's what he's singing there. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's actually, like, made me fall in love with the original, like, even more. <laughs> No, I did it AB. I went back and I was kind of like, why is it so different? And they just, you know, they're just basically pushing everything together. Everything is stacked on top of each other on the original reissue. It's not panned like it is in the new thing and sparkly and clean. Right. But I kind of wonder, like, I kind of want a version of this album to be like the opposite. <laughs> like, let's make it sound like Tim, right. the first version where everything's just like, let's squish it together. Let's 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 add some bass to it. Dennis is is really adamant about just how bad the recording session was. He's like, he had us running laps and eating yogurt, no more drugs, <laughs> right. alcohol, or motherfuckers. And Michael isn't playing bass on it either. Right, which I kind of wonder if that's why the bass is so inaudible on the record, is that, you know, maybe when it came time to mix that it's yes. just like Ah, fuck! This isn't Michael doing it. Like, eh, maybe we'll just yeah, um, yeah. Because that's the weird thing is like the performances are all really inspired. If you turn it up really loud, it's it's very powerful. But yeah, the, anything other than like window rattling volume. And human being lawnmower is like a two minute twenty second prog rock who song. <laughs> yeah. Like they out who the who in it. It's like, oh, you think you have a lot of changes in your songs, Pete Townsend? Check this out. It is one of the greatest garage rock songs ever. I 
Rob wrote the song, and Rob came in and was teaching it to Wayne, and he goes, he goes, da da da, and he goes, cool, and he's like, and then we do it again. And he goes, no, we do it once. <laughs> he's like, what? And then it goes here. It, it like this song is full of one moment things. Like it never really repeats. But but it's also so seamless and thoroughly composed that yeah. like if you're not paying attention to it, it you know it doesn't yeah it doesn't beat you over the head like I, 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 as much as I love them like Rush where it's obvious like listen to us oh new time signature oh what about this it's you know like nine million things happen in two minutes and yeah if you don't sit and really concentrate it can just you know go by like Shaken Street that's right. kind of a you know conventional pop song by comparison which is hard hard to do you know which <laughs> as 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 you would you would also know as a as also a songwriter to to try and like fit a bunch of elements in and make it just seem as smooth as breathing is yeah it's not easy no no not at all this is also the era where fred um sonic he starts wearing the sonic smith silver spacesuit with the cape and the lightning bolts on the head. And this is where John Sinclair is also like, man, they're just, they've lost the plot. Like, I'm not into this anymore. And they're not into him. I mean, in terms of the politics and the White Panther Party, they're, they're just moved. It's time for them to separate. So at this point, they fired him as a manager. Yeah. I mean, they were just, you know, they were, they were growing and evolving. And, you know, he, like this thing that they did and they were, you know, they were breaking out of that and um you know but they never truly left politics behind i mean you know the american ruse is on that record and then yeah you know songs Love like that song me too and then songs like future now and high time so it wasn't you know like yes. oh, we're breaking with politics it's just we're we're moving we're young and we're we're still exploring and yeah, I think they wanted to have it come through the music rather than like their iconography. You know, I think they were like, let's let the music speak for us. You know, Michael says that quite a bit. He's just like, I just wanted to play music. Let's just get back to the thing of playing music. Like, I'm tired of being hassled by the cops and the government for our music. You know, that, and I think it's part of the reason why they also went. They started going to Europe and the U UK a lot. Um, to kind of conquer that territory was just kind of to leave some of that, get a little distance from that. Right. They didn't have that stigma attached to them over over in Europe. They were, um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of ironic and sad that, yeah, you know, they 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 do talk about that in the film that, you know, it was really Wayne, Rob, and Fred that were, you know, the pushing the, the politics thing at first and that Dennis and Michael were, ah, oh, we just want to play music. And, you know, as they start to phase out the, you know, the, the politics being at the forefront and get more focused on the music that sadly, that's kind of when Michael's habits start yeah. getting the better of him. And, you know, like they said, he didn't really play much on that record and, you know, it's pretty open about his, his habits and, and the film. Yeah. Which, it's kind of what makes High Time such an amazing record. Um, they're kind of at the end of some of their juice in terms of wanting to be around each other 
Wayne is no longer the leader of the band. It's like kind of a more collective decision. Fred Sonic Smith is starting to be kind of the creative force and songwriter of the band. High Time is an incredible record because it takes the it takes the best elements of the two previous records and smashes them into your head. <laughs> it is right. it has elements of free jazz, it has elements of garage rock, it has elements of soul ballads, you know, piano ballads, every and incredible backing vocals that you kind of hear for the first time. It's just a really impassioned record. It's just very emotional. I yeah, I agree. And do you know the guy that that produced that is a uh he's a British producer. Yeah, Jeff Jeff Haslam. Um he's a physics teacher or or was in uh in Hereford. Um a buddy of mine uh had no idea like it, it was his physics teacher and he said like he learned how to measure the speed of sound using a cricket bat in a, <laughs> in a field and uh had had no idea that yeah his physics teacher had produced high time had produced loaded by the velvet underground ornette coleman john coltrane Rashawn roland kirk as as I do was kind of you know freaking out about the MC5 one night like you gotta check out High Time you gotta check out High Time, and so he came over and I put on High Time and he's like reading the liner notes on the record and he's like, dude that's my physics teacher <laughs> I think and he he's like you know asked to asked to use my computer and looks it up and he's like holy fucking shit I had no idea yeah this dude was my physics teacher oh that's brilliant like. The equivalent of ninth grade. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. He well, he's really smart, but he really brought kind of the band out at a time where they were really struggling. They kind of lost their spiritual connection uh from the music and each other. And they talk about it quite a bit in this film that, you know, Michael, they're they're losing him to drugs. Uh, really drugs, they say push them apart. And at the front of the, of many of their brains, that was what they were thinking about all the time rather than the music. And then other members uh, like Rob were not interested in it and kind of had to sit there in a car while they went to score. And he just kind of had had enough. And so Michael leaves. They get a new bass player, uh, a British bass player, uh, Derek Hughes. And then Dennis and Rob kind of don't want to go back to Europe anymore or the UK. They're you know, Rob's got a family and this is one of the most um, that they have a visual representation of a band dissolving is really incredible. Them playing on a Finnish television in 1972 as a four piece with a new drummer, the bass player, and it's Wayne and Fred. Yeah. And they're both obviously very miserable, oh, too. So horrible. They 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 walk out like they're not into it and then they start playing and Wayne it, it's again, this is really masterful of the documentary. Wayne's talking about like, we were frauds. We were, we, I was singing horribly. And then all of a sudden you hear him singing horribly. I was singing off key. You hear him and see him singing off key and they right. barely get through a song. And then it cuts to Sonic Smith. And he just like shakes his head like, no, like this is no good. And it, like yeah. how much longer 
do we have to play on this show? It's it's so effective and emotional to see something burn so hot just end with no passion. Yeah, no, it it, it is. It's it's a uh, yeah. I forgot how just sad <laughs> the ending of the movie is, but but how you know great it is that in the way in the way that they put it together that it is so just you know you get so wrapped up in it emotionally that you know you feel like you're riding with them when they're you know at their height and they're just killing it every night and then you also yeah you can just kind of feel the pit of your stomach drop out when yeah you see that finished tv where wayne and fred are just obviously like oh man what why are we here you read about that stuff or you hear about that stuff but to see it um and have the bass player derek say we weren't the mc5 he's like we're the mc2 plus one plus a drummer he's like we were not the mc5 at all to have somebody who was in it know that like we were a sham like um and uh, you know everybody cops to it they're like yeah we we were frauds this is this was a lie right although you know to be to be fair, I you know it that had to have been a strange position for them to be in because they thought the MC5, even with this new bass player, were going to Europe, and then you know Rob pulled out just a couple of days before I think they said, and then when Rob left, Dennis is like, yeah, I'm not going. If yeah. Rob's not going, so then just yeah, what do you do when you've got like three or four days? So it's like you can kind of sympathize with them. It's like, well. Uh, we should probably try and make something happen, but oh, it happens all the time. I mean, I've been in things that have continued on when they shouldn't with different people, and I've, and I, but I've also been in things that have just outstayed its welcome. And you're kind of like looking around on that stage, like, like we're not saying this, but I think this is our last show. Like, you know, <laughs> right. and then everyone's just like, I'm taking my equipment home this time. I'm good. Like, no, no, we don't need. You know, I'll put it in my car. Right. <laughs> To have the documentation uh, of something that was just so beautiful and bright and um, fearless, to see it unravel in in such a way that, like, on paper, yeah, you would think, all right, Wayne and Fred, they're kind of amazing. They'll 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 figure it out. They'll kick some ass. Then nothing. I'm sure if they if they you know had more than three days to get something together and you know had had actually yeah i mean they're pretty pretty open and honest about how fucked up you know they were with with heroin and whatever else it's like yeah i think given the the wayne and fred from a few years before where they're like young and full of energy and super hyper focused yeah they could have taken those two guys and made something awesome out of it but yeah i think it's just you know i think that's probably why rob was like yeah i'm not going this is going to be crap yeah then they try one more time in detroit to get it together they're offered a new year's eve show and they all say yes for 500 bucks because they need the money and wayne basically leaves halfway through the set he just starts packing it. he walks over to fred and is like yeah this isn't i'm this is not good i'm out of here and packs up his stuff and michael talks about watching Wayne pack his stuff up and leave and just how 
devastating it was. Like they just knew like it's undersold. No one cares. We're, we're not what we were. We're doing it for the wrong reasons because a big mantra in the thing is they were like, we weren't really worried about the money. We weren't really worried about being stars. We just wanted to be great and then just see where the cards fall. Right. They talked about the, the first show in London, that big, you know, the fun city festival where, you know, they go over and Wayne goes in to, to talk to the promoter about getting paid. Like, oh, there's no money. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Mick Farron of the Pink Fairies brings them over. Yeah. And so they're just like, oh, we're not getting paid. All right. Well, let's destroy every other band on the stage then. And, you know. Yes. And they do it. Yeah. They show that little bit of footage and it's just like. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, of them playing Skunk. And it's like, holy shit, they actually played that song live? Yeah. Um, do, do you ever, have you ever daydreamed about being in a band or being in the MC5? Yes. Um, yeah, no, I all, all the time, like, wish that I could find the magical combination of people where it just ceases to become individual people and just become this thing but it's so it's so rare i mean you can count right. those bands on you know one one hand and um i, I think it's yeah I, I i think it's just luck to find that that kind of combination of people that can all get on the same page and yeah, I don't mean to sound Disney-esque, but it is magical um, when something like this happens. It, it, no, it, it absolutely is. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, not to say that there aren't currently and haven't been, like, tons of amazing bands, but they're just on another, when they were at their height, were just on another another level. Yeah, and like the Velvet Underground, they influenced a ton of bands to harness that kind of energy in rock. Yeah. I mean, and MC5 were incredibly influential on on me. Like more, I mean, I love the Velvet Underground, but I mean, even more than the Velvet Underground, for me, that like MC5 just, they were, you know, a, a, a band that just like opened my eyes to a whole world of possibilities that I wasn't aware of before. And, um, just, yeah, something uh, I've been trying to attain ever since. I think there's also something beautiful about those bands that burned so bright and hot and didn't leave a massive body of work. I think sometimes, you know, like a lot of my favorite bands put out three or four records, you know, Mission of Burma. Right. Velvet Underground only put out a few. And of course, it would be amazing to have three more MC5 records. Of course, that'd be amazing. But there's something beautiful about having something so contained. And, you know, also at a time where, you know, we're talking about the MC5 through the lens of this documentary, but for decades, all we had was the music and a little bit of knowledge about the band, and that spoke volumes. Right. And there was a tiny bit of video footage, like, floating around in in bootleg world like that was that was one of the things is you know i had uh you know at, 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 
I'm sure you way more than me, like actually owning a video store, um, you know, but, but just friends would like trade videotapes of, you know, uh, stuff. And I'd only seen like a couple of MC5 songs. And so then when I saw this documentary and there's all this footage in it, it's just like, where has this been? It's totally tragic that this film is just not on everyone's shelves. Um, and that people are going to have to struggle to find it. It's out there. I mean, I see it in record shops and things like that in bootleg form all the time. So at the end of every episode, I ask the same question, but I tailor it depending on what the movie is and the subject matter. So on a scale from one to 10, with one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, how many motherfuckers do you give this movie? Oh, dude, this this gets so many motherfuckers it would get an X rating. <laughs> I mean, as 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 we as we discussed, it's just I I I just think, especially watching it again today to to prepare to to chat with you about it. Even though you know I have seen it like nine bazillion times, I just was struck again by just how well the story was told how well it was edited how much the filmmakers do not make themselves a part of it yes at all you can hear them talk a couple of times asking questions only when it's relevant you know like where you hear the guy ask dennis thompson like well, what's the big deal? It's just rock and roll. And you could tell the only reason that got left in is because Dennis Thompson's response is to pick up the gun and be like, I wish this was loaded. And, you know, without, so you need the context. Um, no, I just, I, I really, I, I just, you know, again, like we mentioned, you know, like the Great the Dead documentary, I watched that, even though I do not like that band at all. I've tried a million times. And it's it's a great documentary, but so yeah, it's like I'll watch any music documentary I can can find, and and most of the time, you know, like you were saying, the Stooges documentary, like it's cool, but it's not great. Like this is great. This yes. is a great documentary, and as you as you said, somebody that has never heard a note of the MC Five, you can. It's still just. It's a great. Every band deserves a documentary made about them this good. Well, a lot of Oasis doesn't, but you know the great the great bands the the great bands absolutely do. Yeah, I mean we've mentioned the Who a couple of times, and you know their their documentary that came out. It's like it's unwatchable. You know, like pretty. I mean, it's not. It's very watchable because it's still the Who and see all this great footage of them but is this a newer documentary yeah yeah it came out oh i want to say somewhere around 2008 it's called amazing amazing journey where like (laughs) yes i remember that yes yeah i forgot about it that's Yeah, yeah exactly so um right so um yeah no i i uh i would i would rate this 15 motherfuckers out of, out of 10. I just think it's just, and, uh, yeah. And amazingly done from, from start to finish, but then just the fact of 
how much I love the MC5 and to hear all these snippets of songs that I love that just that I you know have an emotional attachment to outside of the film that then when they play along with that's that's the other thing is I think all the music is like perfectly placed it's always the right song at the right time the right section of the right song at the right time that fits the emotional arc of what they're telling with that portion of the story that just like human being lawnmower like so much of it can just go by unnoticed because it flows so well that you know you'd really only notice if there was like a choppy edit or something was out of sync or something just didn't add up but the fact that you know it's just it's 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 all it's all there i couldn't you know couldn't think of anything that i would would have done would have wanted them to have done differently um, yeah, agreed. It is a it's a fifteen motherfucker film out of ten. I would I would say, I I I duck it I duck it one motherfucker for Wayne Kramer's shenanigans that that got it. Actually, that's not fair. That's not fair to the film. That's like that's just. But we'll just slip one motherfucker into his pocket when he's not looking. Yeah, there you go. That fucking motherfucker. Yeah, and still give them the full fifteen. Yeah. So I still can't believe that he just. I would love to know what was actually going through his his mind when he started all this stuff because yeah i think uh i i don't know i mean it's yeah i i think they would be regarded so differently today and i think you know obviously rob tyner and fred smith were already dead but you know part and not to take anything away from the studios i think they're awesome but you know the fact that there was a version of the Stooges that, you know, it was like, you know, the three living numbers and Mike Watt, who God, he couldn't get anybody better, went out, toured as the Stooges and could, you know, like just, you know, raise their profile. And it's it's a shame that there hasn't been <clears throat> the equivalent for the MC5. And, you know, the Stooges will work with the record label to do you know, a, a nine CD box set of every take that they recorded for Funhouse or, you know, right. whatever. Good like, point. like I, I know because I had had breakfast with um, a guy at, at Rhino several years ago that for years, all of the MC5 tapes were lost except for some copies. And so the original CDs that came out were taken from like copies, but, you know, with high time and back in the usa they had to take some songs off of records because they didn't even have any tape copies but they found all the multi-tracks all of the original mix down tapes and like i said we're preparing for a big reissue campaign and yeah just yeah it's 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 a loss it's definitely a loss and you know i hope that at some point this film finds its way into a proper release because even as is in this edited form it is a perfect documentary um, about these five incredible weirdos. Yeah, they just happened to find each other in Detroit. Like, if they hadn't been lucky enough to find each other, like, what would any of them have done with any other group of people? Like, 
probably. Oh, Rob says I would be in the film. He says I'd armed robbery. I'd be in jail if I didn't join the MC five. He's like, that, that was my trajectory, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, fortunate on many, many levels. Thank you so much, Cliff. This was awesome. It was so good to see you. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been lovely to, to chat with you again. Um, wish we lived closer. So it wasn't so sporadic. Hopefully you'll get over here with Griff again. That tour you did was last time was great. So oh, thanks. say hello to everyone over there. We'll, we'll do. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks so much. Awesome, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Bye.